When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by BP. We see possibilities in solar farms that float. To see how we're driving worldwide growth in solar through our LightSource BP partnership, go to bp.com forward slash possibilities everywhere. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Well, that was just a little bit too close for Ursula von der Leyen's comfort, a nine-vote margin of victory to become European Commission president-elect. She's attracted a lot of criticism and a lot of people saying she's not going to be able to function with just a tiny majority like that and as a puppet of the European Council national leaders set. Well, I'm here to say don't underestimate Ursula. Let me explain. Ursula von der Leyen is someone who managed to get everyone from law and justice in Poland to the UK Labour Party backing her from a very bad starting position. She also built a policy agenda with MEPs, making concessions even to parties who didn't vote for her in the end, like the Greens. So all of that is a very broad base for getting things done. Ursula von der Leyen also looks the part, and I don't mean that in a superficial way. I mean in a very deep way. If you had to pick someone who was going to play an EU president on television, they would be as disciplined as Ursula von der Leyen, they would flip between languages as effortlessly as Ursula von der Leyen, they would look and present the way Ursula von der Leyen does. And that matters for a set of institutions that has struggled to create an emotional narrative and has struggled to connect with ordinary citizens. Essentially, Ursula von der Leyen inspires confidence. Now, a lot of people say that words aren't enough, but words are the only tool that have been at Ursula von der Leyen's disposal up until now, and she's used them well. So if you want a functional EU, there is reason to hope. Obviously, the test is going to be, can she turn this into concrete policy action? Can she build a diverse and high-quality team of commissioners? We'll only know that in the coming months. But I think that Ursula von der Leyen is going to prove that she is a capable European Commission president. Now let's move on to our feature interview this week. We're talking to Meta Grohlman. She's the head of the office of Fleischmann Hillard, the largest public affairs and lobbying firm in Brussels. She's also no stranger to EU politics and no stranger to controversy. Fleischmann Hillard and some of their clients have been caught up in a lot of that recently. So we talk about all that and more in this interview. Let's hear from Meta Grohlman. Joining me now on the podcast, I've got a fascinating guest, Meta Groleman, who is now running the largest public affairs and PR firm in Brussels, Fleischmann Hillard. And you were working for many years inside the commission as a senior advisor to commissioners. Welcome, Meta. Thank you very much, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. Groleman, where does that name come from? I'm fascinated. We were having a discussion about how to pronounce your name before we began the podcast. Uh, tell us a bit more about your background. Yeah, well, I haven't chosen the easiest names in Brussels to pronounce. So Mede is very Danish and a very sort of old Danish name. But Groleman is my husband's last name and it's Dutch. 
So to try and learn to speak Danish and Dutch in the same sentence is a challenge for many. Well, we've got Ursula von der Leyen, who might be about to become Commission President. We're talking in between her big speech to Parliament and before the MEPs vote. So I think that multilingual theme is a great way to get started because she jumps between languages all the time and she's got a very similar European background. But let's talk some serious stuff first. You've just left working for the Commission after many years and now you've jumped outside to work with all of the people who are trying to influence the Commission but it's such a fascinating time in European politics. What made you want to leave inside the system and go and work with people outside of it? As you say, it's a fascinating time. And I worked in the Commission as a temporary agent, so I knew at some point that adventure had to end as well. And with Commissioner Hill, Brexit obviously put a stop to that journey with him and with Vice President Domborski's. It was a question of choice. Did I want to stay inside or did I want to try and challenge myself in a new way and I decided to challenge myself in a new way and join Fleischmann Hillard and obviously for the love of politics I love what's happening in this city I very much believe in the European project as such and it's just fascinating times to be here and I wanted to still be part of that, even though I left the institutions, whether it was the council where I worked or the commission, I wanted to still be part of it in a different way, but still be part of the ecosystem that we call the Brussels bubble. And now you've had a little while to settle into the new job. What do you miss most from the old job and what are you relishing most about having that freedom of not being in, in an institution? Well, I think when I decided to leave, you have to leave. You can't be in wanting to get in, but be outside. So that was sort of the fundamental question that I had to ask myself first. Can I leave and be happy in a different role? And the answer for me was very much, yes, I can. But it is a different role. And what I miss the most about the commission in the institution as such are the people. They are white people. They are lovely to work with. I have no complaints at all. And I loved working there in the time I did. Out on the other side, I get to have a little bit more of a freer role, so I get to have an opinion, because obviously when you work for politicians, that's what you do. It is not my own opinion as such. I'm working for politicians, whether it was Hill or Domborskis or anyone else, that's what you do. You work for their vision. And out here, you get to have an opinion about what's going on. And that's something that can also be a bit of a difficult line to tread with Mm -hmm. clients, because I guess at one level they really value your insight, if you didn't have a perspective, they wouldn't be paying you good money to, to get those insights. At the same time, you have to be driven by the clients. You can't just be running around doing whatever you think is best for the world. So how do you strike that balance? What is the, the way to really give a client value these days? I think budgets have been a lot tighter since the financial crisis in, in 2008. So how do you strike that balance between giving people your unique insights, but also just doing what they want? Well, for me, what we do here at Fleischmann Hillard is about advising. And what that's what we can do. We can advise and tell how we view Brussels, how we view it from looking at all 28 still member states and what they bring to the table here. At the same time, I have a glimpse into the world of the Commission and the Council and how that works as well. I can also give them a little bit of a sniffer that not everyone in the Commission spends a long time looking at how can we regulate 
that specific business or that specific business model because the time is not there. Uh, so sort of maybe demystify a little bit what's going on inside as well to bring a bit more nuance. I can only speak for what I know and how I see the world. Then it's for the client to assess what they want to use that for. But ultimately, that's a client's decision. It's not my decision. I don't want that business. I can advise them, and that's what they're sort of paying me to do. But in the end, it is up to each and every individual business to take that advice and do with it what they want to do. So we recently had Paul Adamson on the podcast, and he's been a big figure in the Brussels lobbying scene in general. And he was really lamenting and pushing back on the way that lobbying as a profession has become a bit of a punching bag. Mm -hmm. He was saying, you know what, everyone is a lobbyist. Everyone wants to influence the political outcome one way or another. So whether you're an NGO, a corporation, someone who actually decided to join the European project because they believe in it, you're all lobbying in one way or another. How do you see it now that you have sort of worked on these different sides of the equation and given that you've got big clients who have big demands, but also your job at some level is to tell them to be realistic about what they can get out of the system. Well, I, I view it the same way. We are This ecosystem of the Brussels bubble, everyone has an opinion and everyone wants to tell policymakers their opinion one way or the other. And I value that. I valued it when I was on the inside because to sit and do legislation in isolation from what's going on in Europe, how it will affect our businesses, how it will affect our industry, is naive, in my view. It was naive when I was on the inside. It's naive when I'm here, I find. I don't see that differently. And whether it's NGOs or activists that have one opinion or industry that might have another opinion... Everyone deserves to be heard, and that's called democracy. So to me, to be able to do the best possible as a lawmaker, you need to hear all sides. And then the notion that lawmakers just take one side and put that into legislation is then naive for the outside world to think, because you need to take that, and then you need to put your political conviction into that, and then it becomes law, and then it hopefully is a balanced suggestion of where you want to lead. Now, one of the big clients that Fleischmann's had in recent years is a company called Monsanto. probably needs no introduction, and it's recently been bought by Bayer. And they've been caught up in a lot of controversy, so I did want to ask you about that. And I also need to explain a bit of context as well. So part of the controversy was a big database that existed, or perhaps it wasn't so big, but anyway, it was a list of journalist names, politician names, quite a few details about them, what Fleischmann thought their views of Monsanto were, and a chemical called glyphosate that they use in one of their big products and which they were seeking to have continued as being able to be used and authorized for use in Europe. And so I was one of the people on that database. I got a a letter from a law firm a couple of weeks back. And I have to say personally, I wasn't worried by that at all. You know, I have maintained stakeholder databases myself when I worked inside the EU. And I think it's a bit strange. I don't know how you would call a journalist or anyone else if you didn't have their contact details in the database. At the same time, that caused a big backlash in France. A lot of people are saying that it broke French lobbying laws. A lot of people are just ethically uncomfortable with the way that democracy is conducted if it involves databases like that. So 
what's the situation from your perspective? How, what happened when you learnt about it? Because it happened before you started working at Fleischmann Hillard. And what are you doing about it now? What's the fallout? Well, I think, first of all, I can't speak so much to a specific case because all clients need and deserve respect and privacy around what we do with them. But what I can say in more general terms is that when you're exposed to criticism, whoever is criticizing you, you need to take a step back and look at yourself and ask yourself whether you have acted ethically and within the boundaries of the rules, both the written rules, but also can you look yourself in the mirror when you get up, basically, of what you have done? And that, to me, is fundamentally what we have to do every single day. On stakeholder mapping, is an ingrown part, as you say, of what we do. But that doesn't mean that we can't take a step back and look at, did we get it right or didn't we get it right? And I'm not speaking about this specific case, but you have to ask yourself, every time you produce documents with personal information, are they needed and how are we doing it? And that's what we're doing here as well. And sort of, I think the Bayer Monsanto case for many here in Brussels was just an example for, I got a lot of, well, we did the same thing. To me, that wasn't the question. It's about, have we acted the way we should act? And that's what we need to ask ourselves. And so, right question, what was the answer? Did you decide, okay, we did it the right way, we're on okay terrain here, or is there something that you'll change in the future about how you run these things? No, but I think it's a good lesson in pausing at the right moment every time and looking at, is this the right way we're going about it or is it not? I think that's a good lesson in general to learn whether it's stakeholder mapping or sort of new MEPs going into the parliament because we are all getting them from various sources. And I think it's a good lesson to learn to pause and say, are these informations in public domain? Yes, they are. But do we need them to, to do our job? And I think we need to do that every time we create issues for clients and that's what we're doing here. Now, speaking of the parliament, we've got about 450 new mm-hmm. MEPs. So there's going to be a lot of people making a lot of databases about their names and, and where they're sitting on the political spectrum. What's your expectation over the next five years in how EU policy making is going to unfold? We've had a huge debate in the last couple of months about the personalities that yeah. will be leading, but we've also had a quite detailed debate about the policies. So maybe give us your lie of the land yeah. about what your own clients or what others who care about the EU are going to have to be thinking about. Yeah. Well, if we sort of take stock in where are we now, we are tasked with a handful of personalities, new personalities within the European institutions, which is going to be interesting to see how they want to see their legacy going forward. And we're only sort of seeing snippets of that at the moment, but... As I said, being in love with politics, that's part of it. Personalities, large personalities also here is big. On the parliament side, after the parliament election, I found it quite interesting to see how diverse the parliament became and how a grand coalition of the S&D and the EPP did, couldn't happen anymore, how the Greens play a much larger role in the policy settings as such. And that's going to be a challenge going forward because how do you operate in that system it was basically i wouldn't call it easy but it was easier to navigate before because you knew you had the snd and the epp and if they agreed basically you had a majority it's much more difficult for companies for ngos for everyone to go in and advocate their case now and that i think is completely new to everyone here and fascinating to be part of 
It's absolutely fascinating picking up the climate issue, for example, where everyone noticed that that was a big feature in the campaign itself. Mm -hmm. Now you see it written into all these competing documents from the different institutions. Yeah. And the Greens have really been very reluctant to get involved in the personality yeah. game. I thought in the end, oh, they're going to end up backing one candidate or another. It seems like they're really refusing to, to sort of bite on that, mm -hmm. but they're really insisting on the policy front. So I feel yeah. like they're going to be very, very tough negotiators on individual policies, probably including glyphosate, let's be honest. And then on the other side of things, it's going to be very challenging for people who feel that they're committed to the EU as a project. And now you've got these 200 to 230 euro skeptics, depending on how you define it. And we've seen them locked out of quite a few committee positions, but I suspect quite a few more of them are going to start being active legislators in this term. They've been rock throwers up till now, and a few of them are going to get in and start to try and prove that they can actually legislate. Is that your sense as well? It's a bit my sense. As you say, I found the last five years to be not disappointing, but I find it a waste of votes because they have basically not been active at all in the normal legislative cycle. And partly it is because to play the Brussels game and play the game within the European Parliament, you also have to want it. And you can't be an activist in that way so much that you can't play that game or that legislative game that it also is in my view inside and you probably see a few more because their countries will start to care so whether it's the Italian or whoever it will be that will be needed simply from a legislative point of view to actually start being active and I think that's going to be the interesting part because it is a conundrum how you then go in and speak to that side of the parliament. And I, uh, I will even go as far in saying the ECR group is a different group than it was under the last term, which is going to be interesting to see where they are. The, the British Conservatives basically imploded, and they're likely out anyway. Exactly, Brexit. but they have some very interesting figures. So the former Belgium finance minister is in there, mm -hmm. which is certainly not a figure that you could just sort of dismiss as not wanting to dive in and have the working gloves on. So that's going to be interesting to see how he, for instance, will still in Econ play a role. You made me remember one other vote that just happened last night. Beata Szydlo, the former Polish prime minister, she's also in that conservative and reformist group. Yeah. She was voted down for a second time as head of the Employment and Social Affairs Committee. Yeah. So even people in the at the edge of the mainstream are getting blocked from some of these positions. It's, it makes me think as well of the league in Italy, where if Matteo Salvini wants to cut deals on the budget, for example, mm -hmm. but refuses to be constructive in the parliament, yeah. I think we're going to find we're hitting a lot of brick walls in different institutional settings, possibly. We, we certainly are, and we are also hitting this sort of black-white picture in a different way. So we have the mainstream groups, and then we have a little bit sort of the outside, even the ECR, which, which sort of it's not a surprise knowing where the British Conservatives are at the moment, but I don't find that for a democracy it's healthy not to have those groups, if they want to, at least play a role, because we can disagree or agree with them, but in the end, in a democracy, everyone needs to be heard. Now, one final question. You were in the Commission on the Inside last time round, and two of the really big figures in that Commission look like they're going to 
have a big role next time round. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking Franz Timmermans, Margrethe Vestager, your compatriot. What did you learn from dealing with them on the inside? What do you think they're going to, to push for this time around? Or, you know, people who have to interact with them, what do they have to bear in mind when they are trying to get what they want out of them? Well, I have to be very careful here because I'm obviously biased for Margrethe Vestager. Oh, no, we, lo- <laughs> we love biased people. Be as biased as you want. <laughs> I know. I, well, what I learned from the inside on both of them is that they are very hardworking people. And they fundamentally, both of them, very much believe in the European project and they want the best for Europe and I think that's what we have seen in the past five years. I think Franz Timmermann has been very occupied, rightfully so, with the eastern part of the member states, so on the rule of law issue and he has taken some hard blows for that. I don't think you should view Franz Timmermann as only rule of law issues. He has done a lot of good, but he's also been on the internal lines of the European Commission. Margrethe Vestager has been in the front battling the competition uh, rules, but has put her mark down on many other files. So whether it's taxation Mm -hmm. or the tech companies in, in general or as the single market, she has been front-running all of that. I see strong characters, and it's going to be interesting to see how everyone gets interesting portfolios, because, of course, that's what you want when you are in the inside of the commission. You want to work on things that interest you and things that matters. And how everyone in there gets interesting portfolios it's going to be quite the next challenge for van der Leyen. Uh, and a gender it, equal commission. It's a gender we'll equal commission. That's going to happen, isn't it? Interesting that, portfolios. I, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. <laughs> that's my bias. But I think it needs to happen. It, well, it has to happen, but it is not up to van der Leyen only. It is also very much up to the member states to appoint uh, female leaders, which there certainly are all around Europe. Meta Groleman, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you, Anne. That was Meta Grohlman from Fleischmann-Hillard in Brussels. Next up, the podcast panel, after this message. A message from BP. A race to renewables will not be enough. To deliver lower emissions, the world must make all forms of energy cleaner and better. Read about the many possibilities we see to make this happen at bp.com forward slash possibilities everywhere. I'm excited. It's time for the podcast panel. How can you cope with such enthusiasm, people? It's summer. We're baking and we're ready to go. Hello, Lena. Hello, Alva. Good morning, Graham. Good oh, morning, God. Alva. Good. <laughs> Prepare yourself. After sisters. the morning I've had, you've just got to flip the switch and go in the other direction and be positive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you so, elaborate a little bit more? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, we are now going to talk, though, about uh, the Finnish presidency, the poor Finns. We're going to use them as scapegoats here because they have accepted corporate sponsorship for their presidency of the European Union. They've accepted it from BMW. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to explain how it's somehow specifically sustainable or green, which is indeed the theme of their presidency. And we have to point out this practice has been going on for basically more than a decade. And we even had Coca-Cola sponsoring the Romanian presidency of the EU. I've got a lot of thoughts, but I'm going to turn to you, Alva. What are yours? I don't think it's a good idea. We have an ongoing conversation about lack of tax of corporations across Europe. There's also this idea of bringing in a carbon tax. And in general, climate change has been a very big 
issue during the last European elections. That's this very considered words. Is you were outraged before we turned the recorder on Alva. Well, Where's I did think about now? the vomiting emoji when you when you I was like, oh no, that is that's gross. But the Romanians had Coca Cola, which equally disgusting to me because these companies are well the vomit away but they are well known in brussels for having a lot of lobby power here yeah i don't think it's a good look and also i would like to know more about the process of how they pick sponsors is it a fair process how do you bid for it i don't know it just goes against it's particularly the finish as you said you know they're obsessed with transparency where is the transparency in how you pick this this is a very visible public thing when we know that bmw coca-cola are trying to influence eu legislation That's really the point, isn't it, Lena? Your job in your day job is to try and influence the EU's decision making. And clearly these companies are trying to do the same via the sponsorship. Otherwise, why else would you do it? Certainly, this is that this is what they want to do. But um, I don't know who consulted them and gave them this advice of being so untransparent about the process, as just Alva mentioned. It is normal that private sector and the governments, they always work together, whether there's a big summit, there's a big event. All over the world, they do that, even in the United Nations. Maybe if it was a Finnish company, that would also be like, hey, look, we're promoting Made in Finland, but BMW isn't Finnish. Precisely. And as well, they have picked companies, whether this presidency or the previous presidency, that already had many scandals. This is something contradictive to even the legislation or that they would like to influence when we're talking about environment, when we're talking about green, when we're talking about transport. So that would be the the question mark um, on it. Lessons to be learned, I hope, for the next presidency. I think it's Croatia. Well, definitely not going to be any problems there. Croatia doesn't need any money at all. They're not going to struggle at all to put on a fancy presidency. But they get so much money to do this, right? And I know it's, it is, they spend money, but it, then it also brings in money. So I just don't see the reason behind this. And like giving away free cars, that was one of the things that they were doing. Yeah, but they're not giving it away to the ministers. They're just driving them around for free in the cars. Exactly. Like saving the, the cars money aren't gifts. It's not Oprah. Like, I, I will defend the, the Finns to that extent. Yeah, all the ministers are getting <laughs> You get cars. a car. You yeah. get a car. But still, I mean, they are, they're providing an unsustainable way of them to just drive around, which... So uh, video conferencing presidency, Alva. Yeah. Well, one of the... At the th- very least, you'd think they would have been electric But cars. one of the things that the Finns wanted to do was have less travel, right? That was one of their things. They wanted to have less air travel. Well, and then host offset... the presidency in Brussels. Stop yeah. taking everyone to Finland. That would have been a really good idea. But their idea was to try and offset, take some of the money that would have been used for, mm-hmm. I think it was airfare, and then offset the carbon footprint of their presidency. And yet, at the same time, they are accepting money from BMW and also allowing them to provide free services to ferry ministers to and from places. I don't know. It It does seem like an upside down world to another extent or in another way, rather. So let's take the example of Politico. Like we accept corporate sponsorship of our events. We accept advertising in our publication. And we do that so that we can be free from government influence. We have to get money from somewhere and it doesn't all come from subscriptions. And we don't want to take government money because the main people we scrutinize are public authorities. So the reason we have corporate money is we don't have public subsidies. But when you are the government, you obviously do have government money. So why do you need corporate subsidies is my question. Like you have more money than anyone else, basically, as the government. 
especially the Finnish government. And we have passed this time where the private sector doesn't work with the public sector in big events. I mean, look at the World Economic Forum. It's hosted always by uh, by government. Well, they can also donate. They're not paying all their taxes. They got plenty of money to donate. Yes, uh, but governments do call. And I remember in, in my region, in other parts of the world, whether in in Brazil or in Mexico, for their summits as well, they call on the private sector to pitch in in order to host such a big event. So sometimes it is normal if it's in kind. Not like money. We're not sure that they have given the Finnish presidency money or the Romanian money. I think maybe they gave free coke or the rights. So it could be as well. Is it something about how much the EU is valued? You know, if Finland was president of the United Nations, if such a thing existed, would they put the money into that? And is it actually that they think a lot of people in Finland don't like the EU? So, well, we've got to cut down the spending on it. How do we cut down the spending on it? We've got to get corporate sponsorship in. So maybe it's actually a reflection on what the government thinks, Finns think about the EU. But the Romanians would that help? Think the same, no? I don't know. Would it, I, it's would not it a help? value judgment. It's an would observation. Would it help for BMW to? Would that not offset any of the benefit they get from reducing the amount of money they're spending on the presidency? Oh, we're going to let get a giant corporation that's contributing to climate change to sponsor our sustainable presidency. <laughs> I don't know. It just, I mean, it's like a, um, a kind of PR nightmare. Why mm-hmm. would anybody... Anyway, the thing is yeah. that we... I and, and I do want BMW to be a sustainable company, and if they're making efforts in that regard, good for them. But they're not there yet, I think is the point. The point is, they have been recently involved in a number of scandals. They are involved in a fossil fuel emitting industry. So, you know, whatever change been, journey BMW is on, they aren't the green and clean Imagine thing if it was Volkswagen. That would have oh been funny. God. Even better. I think if we Google a little bit more, we might find that they have sponsored a presidency Ah, in the past. Or the next one. But actually, the other interesting thing is, I didn't even know that this was happening. They must be doing it in a smart way, which is that it's kind of really flying below the radar. So, I mean, I don't know if BMW or Coca-Cola got their money's worth. Hmm. Mm, Now, let me see. So, it turns out that we did a little bit of Googling, and as I suspected, even Volkswagen... Probably the most scandal-mired, scandal-prone company in Europe in recent years was, in fact, a sponsor of a very recent EU presidency, Austria, in 2018. I do think I mentioned it at the time. And Audi. And And Audi. And Porsche Austria. And the public trains. There we go. That's green and clean. Offsetting there. The auto industry have the same... They even had an official water. Look at that. That's very clean and green. And an official apple juice. Okay. And an official postal service. So Austria was drowning in sponsors in 2018. Yeah, wow. Okay, who knew? Who knew? I think the people who go to summit events <laughs> and get all the free stuff, they knew. That's for sure. Well, that certainly was an interesting discussion. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you, Alva. Thank you, Lena. Thank, Thank you, Ryan. Ryan. As always, podcasting is a team effort. We really couldn't do this if it wasn't for Izzy Borshoff, for Antonio Fernandez and Andrew Gray. So thanks, guys. If you haven't already joined our community, you can go to politico.eu forward slash registration. Sign up there. You'll get the podcast in your inbox each week. And we become more visible to everyone else if you leave us a review. So it's annoying. It's frustrating. I say it all the time. But take two minutes. Please do it. And we can make sure that more people get to be part of this podcast.